Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. This week, we are taking a break from our COVID-19 coverage at Talking Indonesia. And we take a step back in time, not just a few months to the time right before COVID, but quite a few years back to the authoritarian New Order period. My guest today is historian Dr. Vanessa Hirman, a senior lecturer in Indonesian studies at Charles Darwin University in Darwin. Vanessa is the author of Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia, published by NUS Press. And the book was recently awarded the 2020 Early Career Book Prize by the Asian Studies Association of Australia. Today, Vanessa joins me to talk about her research on transnational human rights activism in the late 1970s and early 1980s, a time when Indonesia was estimated to have between 55,000 and 100,000 political prisoners as a result of the army-led anti-communist violence of the mid-1960s. We will focus on the question how letter writing exchanges between some of these prisoners and individual supporters in Western countries led to new forms of transnational human rights activism and to what extent this kind of activism has left a legacy which contemporary human rights campaigners can use in their activism today. Vanessa, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you, Dirk. All right. Um, most of our listeners will probably be familiar with the events of 1965 in Indonesia, but given that we mostly cover contemporary issues in this podcast, I thought it's probably a good idea if we begin our conversation with some background first. So can you perhaps start off by briefly explaining to us what, just very briefly, I know, you know, that's a huge topic, but just very briefly, what happened in the mid-1960s in Indonesia and why were there still so many political prisoners in the 1970s and 80s? So how it all began was with the 30th of September movement, which was a group of junior military officers that uh, were uh, involved in the killing, kidnapping and killing of six army leaders, including the commander of the armed forces, General Ahmad Yani, on the 30th of September 1965. And in response to those events, the Indonesian army unleashed a major suppression campaign against the left. They blamed the Indonesian Communist Party for the killings of the army leaders. And they represented these killings as being some kind of a coup attempt against President Sukarno. And at the time, the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Party, was the third largest in the world. So all these people were caught up in these purges carried out against the left by the army. So it's estimated that between 600 and 750,000 Indonesians would have been detained uh, at varying for varying periods of time in connection with these purges. 
And in the late 1970s, Amnesty issued, Amnesty International issued a report about the situation of political imprisonment in Indonesia. They estimated that by that time, there were between 55 to 100,000 political prisoners in Indonesia. So political imprisonment in Indonesia was a major human rights issue globally uh, at that time. Okay, thanks for that. And in your recent research, you zoomed in on one of those thousands of prisoners, a former school teacher called Puji Aswati, and you retraced her extraordinary epistolary friendship with a British woman. Can you tell us a little bit about Puji Aswati? How did you come to choose her? Who was she? And how did she become one of those prisoners? So in 2010, I went to the International Institute of Social History. It's a major archive in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And I was trying to trace uh, one of the women I had interviewed in East Java. Um, and her files came up in connection with um, some papers, some letters, which had been written about her and by her in this archive in Amsterdam. And As I discovered these letters about this particular woman, I discovered many more letters and found that Indonesian political prisoners who were detained in connection with the 1965 events had written many letters to pen pals overseas. And they'd been collected by organisations like Amnesty International because they had initiated some of these letter-writing campaigns. So the letters had formed part of uh, archives to do with people who had worked for Amnesty International. So this got me interested because I didn't know anything about these letters. And when I interviewed this woman in Surabaya, she had told me that she had pen pals overseas, but it never really clicked um, until I saw those very physical forms of what she was saying in front of me um, in those archives. So from there, I started to do more interviews uh, with those who had corresponded with Indonesians. I travelled to London. I met a Quaker couple uh, who were involved in some of these letter-writing initiatives. And I found the name of Puji Aswati really through um, some of these letter-writing campaigns. And then the uh, the existence of the Puji Fund, a, a political prisoner support fund, sort of got me interested why it was named after her and, and who was she. So she was a, a member of Gerwani, the Indonesian women's movement, Gerakan Wanita Indonesia. And um, in 1965, Gerwani was Indonesia's largest women's organisation. Puji was born in Samarang in central Java in 1929. Her family, specifically her mother and her eight brothers and sisters, were based in Kabumen in central Java. Her father was active in the underground movement against the Japanese during the time when they occupied Indonesia from 1942 to 45. And... Over the course of that time, he had died while he was in detention in Japanese captivity. So the family suffered a great deal in the um, immediately in the post-war period because of the loss of the breadwinner. Puji became a school teacher and she was first teaching at a Taman Siswa school in Yogyakarta. So these schools were explicitly non-political, but they were in reality important institutions for forming early nationalism. In 1952, Puji met and married a man called Gatot Lestario, who was also a teacher and headmaster at a Taman Siswa school in Kadiri in East Java. 
the couple were deeply involved in leftist politics. And in 1954, they moved to Surabaya, the capital of East Java, which was also an important support base for the PKI. Gatot became a party functionary at the provincial level, and she became ever more involved in Gurwani. In Surabaya, Puji taught English at a Chinese school, and at the time of the army purges against the PKI, she was about 36 years old, and Puji and Gatot um, had two children by then. So how um, the couple came to be arrested was that in, uh, between 1967, uh, 1967 to 1968, remnants of the party leadership set up a rural base south of the city of Blitar in East Java to try to challenge the army takeover of power in Jakarta. But really, they were no match for the army, and the base was destroyed in an operation called the Trisula, or the Trident Operation, and Puji and Gatot were captured separately. Puji and about seven other women, members of the left like her, were then transported and detained in the Malang women's prison, and it wasn't until about 1978 that Puji went on trial and she was sentenced to 15 years in prison without regard for the time for the 10 years she had already served in prison. Hmm. And by the time when that was happening in Indonesia, um, you mentioned before there were activists over at the other end of the world in Europe who were active either with Amnesty International or other organisations who were trying to sort of engage with these uh, prisoners via letter writing. And the woman that started eventually writing letters with Pujia Swati was Patricia Cleveland Peck. So who was she and what prompted her to start writing these letters? Patricia was a lawyer and writer in East Sussex in Britain, where she lived on a farm with her husband and three children, two boys and a girl. Patricia was a Quaker and the Religious Society of Friends, or Quakers, was a Christian denomination that was founded in Britain in the mid-17th century. And the Quakers place witnessing and testimony about injustice at the core of their practice. So Patricia was also interested in social justice issues and curious about other countries. She was a freelance writer. She travelled uh, to various places to write articles that she sold to magazines. And she also wanted to do something practical that would fit with her interests uh, on social justice issues and her uh, religious practice as a Quaker that she could also fit in with her writing and her domestic duties. So she became involved in what the Quakers called a prisoner befriending scheme. And what this was was writing letters to prisoners of conscience, people who were imprisoned for their political beliefs. And it was a scheme that, that the Quakers were running as part of their uh, anti-torture campaign. So one of the founders of Amnesty International, Eric Baker, was himself also a Quaker. And so Amnesty International and the Quakers mutually influenced one another, including in the decision to mount an anti-torture campaign in the early 1970s. So in, in the process of, of um, this political prisoner befriending scheme, names were distributed to volunteers who then wrote postcards, Christmas cards, and so on to prisoners in many countries, like to Chile, uh, the Soviet Union, and Indonesia. And unexpectedly, Patricia received a reply to one of her letters from Puji in 1982, and that's how they began to write to one another. Mm, you say unexpectedly, and indeed I was wondering how 
Puji would have been able to receive letters and to even get letters back out of her prison. So I assume what she was writing would have been fairly sort of innocent, non-political. Can you tell us a little bit of what the two women were writing about in their letters and what the sort of censorship regime from the prison system was at the time? Letters from Puji did have to pass the prison censor. So the topics obviously could not be overtly political, but there was a great deal of latitude in terms of how her plight and her suffering inside prison could be conveyed in these letters using humanistic terms, terms of uh, compassion, faith, spirituality. So despite the, the vast differences between the two women, or perhaps because they were cognizant of these differences between them, in their letters they sought to establish things that they had in common. So they, they wrote about being mothers, about bringing up children, about domestic duties. Uh, they had an interest in needlework. They wrote about knitting and dressmaking patterns, uh, making pullovers, cardigans, all sorts of things. Um, and also um, they discussed their shared Christian faith with Puji being baptised as a Catholic in prison and relating to Patricia, her walks to mass nearby when these were allowed by the prison authorities. And Patricia explaining to her, how the Quakers worshipped. And at this point, um, if you would allow me, I wanted to read out an excerpt of Patricia's letter about this to Puji. So in this letter, it was um, the 3rd of October, 1983. Patricia wrote, and I quote here, we have our own special way of worship, which as you know, is one hour of silence together in which anyone can speak if moved by the spirit of God. This is because we feel there is something of God in every man, and by waiting quietly together, God may speak through any person. For this reason, we have no priests, no sacraments, for we believe all are ministers and all life sacramental. Very different, I know, from the Mass, for I was brought up a Catholic, as was my husband. This is very simple, very bare. And that's the end of the quote from the letter. Puji also wrote a lot about Indonesia, its history, as well as about places in central Java where she had come from. She sent postcards of places that she had cherished in her life, places she could no longer see. And despite the ever-present prison censor in her letters, she also wrote about her longing for her mother and her children and the hardships that they suffered because of her imprisonment. In terms of a shared intellectual life, the women also discussed languages, learning, using languages. They wrote to each other in English, as well as um, discussing writing. Patricia was a writer and Puji was interested in writing too, maybe writing children's books in the future. This was a dream of hers which preoccupied the women for some time about how to bring it about. But soon it was exposed for what it was, a dream, because the Indonesian government would never have allowed people like her to be published. There were restrictions on what the ex-tapol, the former political prisoners, were allowed to do. In your research, you're sort of linking this letter-writing activity to broader activism and advocacy work. So can you explain a bit of how Patricia sort of experienced this letter-writing as a first step to becoming more of an activist and um, starting to sort of advocate publicly for Puji and other political prisoners? 
Yeah, so I think with letter writing, the, the intimacy of the letter and the format and the disclosures that were possible through the letter provided a space for expressing many deeper inner thoughts that I think for both women allowed a, a certain freedom and a certain latitude to develop their relationship. And for Pudgy, it helped to break the isolation and the stigmatisation um, against people like her that she was experiencing in Indonesia. So it was a like an alternative space in which they could be present. So in terms of how the letter writing drew people like Patricia into a a more uh, public form of campaigning. So by virtue of these letter writing campaigns and relationships that developed, they became part of a network consisting of other pen pals in the UK and other countries and other prisoners in Indonesia, such as Gatot Lestario and some of his fellow inmates in Pamakasan in Madura, who were also writing letters. And so they worked with Amnesty International, with the Quakers and human rights uh, non-government organisations like the Tarpal Human Rights Campaign in Britain. They became drawn into this because the information in the letters provided an insight into what were the conditions inside prison. And so it became a very dynamic information uh, source for the organisations as well who were campaigning for this issue. In 1984, Doreen Brown, another pen pal in London, who was also a Quaker, ran a petition campaign for Pudgy and Gathot's release and for them to be exiled outside of Indonesia because um, there were rumours that the Indonesian government was going to start executing leftist prisoners. And as is often the case, um, a letter-writing relationship extends beyond the letter-writers and includes more and more people. So more people were becoming drawn into supporting Gathot and Puji. And the letters in Patricia's collection showed this ever-widening circle. So there were letters from the couple's children. There were letters from Quakers near Jakarta who were acting as go-betweens with the children letters from sympathetic foreign embassy officials in Jakarta who were helping pass letters and parcels from prisons, uh, from the prisons to overseas. So it became a very intricate network of activism um, at the public level as well as at the more sort of underground level that was harder to detect by the authorities. Mm. And in your introductory remarks earlier on, you also mentioned that um, eventually... Patricia set up like a fund. I think you mentioned the Puji fund. So was that basically to to sort of to raise money specifically for Puji and to get her perhaps um, the, um, to put some pressure on the Indonesian government as for this petition, for example, or was Puji basically sort of the symbol or the representative of political prisoners more broadly? And was this a fund that was intended to support more prisoners than just Puji? Yes, so the impetus for this was when in July 1985, Gatot Lestario, her husband, was executed by firing squad along with two other men, Joko Untung and Rustomo. Puji was, of course, bereft when she heard the news and Patricia had entertained the thought of setting up some kind of support fund when she worked out that Puji would find it hard to make a living once she was released with all the government restrictions on her. So with Gatot's execution... This idea of setting up some kind of fund for Puji had it became more urgent. So the first recipient of the Puji fund, um, which was set up in 1980, 1986, was her friend 
Mrs. Marcina, and here I use a pseudonym, um, Mrs. Marcina was a senior PKI leader. She was released first, and then Puji asked if maybe if there was any money in the Puji fund, if, if um, Mrs. Marcina could be the first recipient. So the fund initially uh, focused on helping the women in Malang prison when they got out, women like Marcina, Puji, and other of her fellow inmates. But it wasn't just for them, it was for other political prisoners in Indonesia, and then it developed more broadly into taking in political prisoners from anywhere in the world. Mm, okay. Does the Puji funds still exist? So the Puji fund was drawn down by about 2018, so very recently, and it still exists as part of uh, our, one of the Quaker charities. So it sat under the umbrella of the Quakers uh, to um, provide it with a greater institutional backing and to give it that charity status. So it, it still exists formally, but Patricia, given she's now in her early 80s, decided a few years ago to wind it down and to stop collecting regular donations. And the actual letter writing between the two, how long did that go on and all? So they wrote to each other about once a month when Puji was in prison and Puji was released in 1989 and she had fallen ill by then and she um, uh, had been struck by cancer while she was still in prison and so her priority was really about um, trying to get better and that was the focus of um, what she was doing once she was released. So Patricia kept copies of her letters to track the whereabouts of the letters she sent uh, to Puji and Puji's letters in return. And this was very beneficial for the historian in looking at this correspondence between the two women. And interestingly enough, from about 1983, Puji started to send letters from what she called NCAs, non-censored addresses, using the services of a friendly priest and the networks of sympathisers that I mentioned earlier. So in this way, she completely bypassed the prison censor and was then able to send uh, Patricia things like uh, an account of her life, of what happened in South Blitar, what happened when she was captured and detained, and to, to speak uh, much more fully about these more political topics. Did the two women ever meet in person? Was um, Patricia able to go to Indonesia and either visit Puji in prison before she was released or did they meet afterwards? They did eventually meet when Puji was released, accompanied by priests from the Yayasan Hidubaru, the New Life Foundation, a prison fellowship NGO, and they went to Indonesia. But Puji was ill at that time and her life after prison was extremely hard and painful. And a lot of the funds from the Puji Fund went towards her medical costs. And the fund also supported the women's initiatives in setting up a craft cooperative as well. So in that was her first and last meeting with Puji uh, that time in Indonesia. So from your engagement with the letter writers, but also um, through reading all these letters, what would you say is the legacy of this kind of activism? Um, are there today similar funds, for example, that pursue the same kind of activities that the Puji Fund did until 2018? And what kind of forms of activism 
does this kind of prisoner support take today? Letter writing these days um, seems a bit anachronistic. In terms of other similar efforts, the, a major um, NGO that exists today is Prisoner of Conscience, which is a fundraising arm of Amnesty. And it started as a fundraising arm of Amnesty, but it now has um, separate status. And that still exists as a way to support former prisoners. And that organisation is, is much more complex and much more institutionalised than the Puji Fund ever was or the Rehabilitation Fund for Prisoners of Conscience. So um, Patricia wanted to keep it fairly simple without structures or anything like that that she could run fairly flexibly. So it's, it's nowhere near like something like Prisoner of Conscience. And, of course, there are many organisations raising funds, not in a long-term sustained way, as a Prisoner of Conscience or the RFPC uh, did, but there are many different fundraising uh, organisations now that exist. You've also got efforts like, you know, crowdfunding, GoFundMe and, and other things that, that uh, are initiated by individuals or committees and organisations that, that are set up for particular causes as well. So I think that um, fundraising now has become much more complex, much more institutionalised, but also uh, much more cause-based. So it might be temporary and responsive rather than these kinds of um, long-term, even though they outwardly appear simple, but they can actually be quite complex. So part of the uh, documents that Patricia gave to me are the records of the RFPC, the records of donations, how much were collected, all her appeal letters and articles in the Quaker newsletters, which kept track of how the fund was going and who it was supporting. So there's a whole other research that can be done in terms of the story of, of just um, these letter writing campaigns with Indonesian prisoners and what it gave rise to. And that's something that I'm, I'm hopeful I'll be able to do um, in the near future. So um, as you say, Dirk, that letters are not as common anymore. And this, of course, as a historian, raises an issue for me of how historians of the future will study the past that websites and causes uh, may not remain on the web forever for as long as you know what we hope with archives of course there are many many problems with archives as well as to what gets archived how long they last whether they're accessible and all that as well but um uh, amnesty still does uh, writing campaigns as a way to activate people and these tend to be focused on particular dates to maximize impact that you spend a few days in a year um, everyone getting together to uh, be writing letters, to see it as a joint activity. So it's not an atomized thing that you do on your own. You're writing at your desk by yourself, um, uh, writing to a particular person, but it's done as, as campaigns with everyone sitting in a room together. But nowadays, I think um, communication has become more complex. So people keep in touch in other ways, like through WhatsApp messages, messenger chats, and so on. So it becomes harder to, for historians to track those kinds of communication and to study them. Internet petitions and email campaigns have replaced much of letter writing and paper-based petitions. Um, 
there's a risk as well. There's short-term impact, short-term splash, and then things move on, attention moves on to other issues. There are things like projects of archiving websites, like Trove at the National Library has done this, and that can assist with collecting data on past campaigns, but much would slip through the net, and I don't know how long the National Library of Australia would continue with those efforts. Activist campaigning has really evolved in, in many different ways. And so it's, um, it's a way of, you know, we have to think about how do we, we study these campaigns going into the future. And sadly, Indonesia still has political prisoners. So there are still people who would certainly benefit from this kind of engagement and attention. According to Human Rights Watch, apparently there are still um, various political prisoners, not only from Papua, which is... Um, reasonably well-known, but also from Maluku, um, people who have been imprisoned for their support for the Republic of the South Moluccas, you know, this independence movement from the 1950s. Some of them apparently already been in jail for quite a long time. Do you know if any of these prisoners, either Moluccans or Papuans, are receiving support from the kinds of transnational human rights networks that you were mentioning? Yeah, so groups like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch and TAPOL continue to support political prisoners in Indonesia like those ones you mentioned. Amnesty now has established an office in Jakarta uh, and Usman Hamid was its first director. And to think back to the New Order regime, thinking of Amnesty setting up an office in Jakarta would have seemed really extraordinary. But political imprisonment does not appear to be such a part of Indonesian political life anymore that it tends to dissipate into the background. And the imprisonment of West Papuans on other islands um, outside of Papua also makes it harder for them to have access and get support from their families and relatives and also from activists um, who often are concentrated on the main island of Java. So I think that it continues to be very hard for Indonesian human rights activists um, inside the country and, and even those speaking out from outside, um, which uh, means that for the Papuans and the South Moluccans, even though their cases are known uh, by international uh, groups, like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, they still need more attention in terms of their welfare in the prisons, particularly in times of COVID-19 like this, um, and that um, the issue of political imprisonment, while it's diminished in Indonesia compared to when Amnesty was writing in the late 1970s, we're still finding people are being uh, put in prison for their political convictions. Yeah, Definitely, and it shows how you know, relevant your work on the period from the New Order still is today. Thanks very much, Vanessa. I think that's um, all we've got time for today. Thank you. That was the latest Talking Indonesia podcast episode with Dirk Tomsa and Vanessa Hirman from Charles Darwin University. Please join us again for the next episode on the 10th of September. And don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.